Now, when the Puritans founded their colonies in New England, they had a dream of creating a city on a hill, as they called it, or a Christian nation. But that dream died within a generation because they forgot one simple fact. Now, in those Puritan churches in those days, in order to be a member of a church, much like many today, you had to give evidence or prove that you were a believer, which most often what that meant is you had to meet with the pastor or the elder of the church and give some testimony or share about your faith in Jesus or just affirm, hey, yes, I'm, I'm a Christian and here's why or how. But being a church member then, it didn't just give you, you know, the right to be a member of the church. There were also a lot of political privileges that came with it. If you were a member of the church, then you could vote not just on who the next pastor would be or what the church should be doing, but also who the government leaders should be around you. And so by the time, as we enter into 1660, a second generation of colonists has now been born and are beginning to have their own children. But the problem is most of those in the second generation are not and have never been members of churches because primarily they didn't profess faith in Jesus. And so they came and they wanted to have their children to be baptized like they were at that time. And then the pastors were saying, well, but you're, you're not a member. You don't profess any faith in Jesus. Why should I baptize your children? And so conflict arose, as you can imagine, as it happens in many places. And so eventually they had to keep everybody happy and keep the church growing and keep everyone kind of together. They made a compromise that gets referred to by historians as the halfway covenant. They decided, okay, we'll baptize these children, but we're not going to let them be members of the church or have all the privileges that come with that. And so to quote Dr. Hannah, who taught and still teaches church history at Dallas for over 40 years, says the dream, the Puritan dream of a Christian nation died within a single generation because they forgot one important fact, that God has no grandchildren. He has no grandchildren. So as we turn in our text this morning, to continue our series in the book of Judges, we will shift from looking at our own nation to the nation of Israel. We're going to be continuing. We're going to start in verse 6 and go all the way to about verse 11 of chapter 3. And what we're going to see is the nation of Israel is facing a similar decline as it goes from one generation to the next. They themselves, have, have, as a nation, have forgotten this fact that faith is not automatically inherited. And so as we're going to look at this, we're going to kind of ask this question of, well, what happens? How do we go from one generation where they're strong and everyone seems to be professing faith in Jesus, and then we go to the next one, and now it seems like things are going off the rails quickly? How does that happen? And we're also going to look at Othniel, who was our first judge or deliverer in this text. And so as, we, as you turn there in your Bibles, the, the three things we're going to see this morning is we're first we're going to look at a, a simple truth then we're going to see how Othniel is an example for us to follow, and then finally our application. So if you are able, if you would stand with me, I'm just out of respect for God's word as we read it, starting in verse 6 of chapter 2. Now when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. At Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him with the boundaries of inheritance at Timonath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount Gaish. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods, among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the, God, the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of those surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned them and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. And they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out from them the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they would take care to walk in the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. And these are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, as far as Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took for themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Kishon Rishathayim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Sherethiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And we went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, for his hand prevailed over Kishon Rishathiam. And the land had rest for forty years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. All of us come into this place having had different weeks, different burdens, different joys, different frustration. I pray that you would meet all of us where we are at. I pray that you would give strength to the weak. I pray that to the tired, you would give rest. I pray that to the proud and the arrogant, you would rebuke and show us the ways that we are not walking according to your word. Uh, I pray that all of us, Lord, would have an encounter with you through your word and th among your people. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes in your bulletin, if you've guessed already, is that God has no grandchildren. 
that God has no grandchildren. Or to say this another way, every generation and every individual for themselves has to decide what God they are going to follow. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow after the other gods of the nations? And our passage this morning it begins kind of in a strange place with the death of Joshua in verse 6. You may have noticed, if you remember last week, the book opens with the death of Joshua. And if you remember back several months ago when we went through the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. So this event is getting repeated kind of repeat over and over. So we have to ask why. Now, some critical scholars or secular scholars will tell you, well, this is clearly just an accident. This proves that God's word is untrustworthy because the people who wrote it just didn't pay attention that this was already somewhere else, and so they were just adding on to it. Well, I don't think that's true at all. I think this is intentional. I think God put this here for a reason, and the reason he points out this death again is to show the differences between Joshua's generation and the generation that came after him, in case we didn't get it. And so look at verses, especially comparing verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So that whole generation of people, that generation that we followed as we looked through the book of Joshua, those people who saw the miracles that God had done, that saw the cloud in the wilderness, that saw manna fall from heaven every day as they wandered, who saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, who saw as God defeated all of those nations around them, who saw all of the miracle after miracle after miracle that God did in their midst. That was Joshua's generation, and they followed the Lord. Now, not perfectly, as you remember some of the instances where they slipped up and failed, but they put their faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But look at the change to the next generation in verse 10. And all of that generation were gathered to their fathers. They're dead now. They're all, they've all passed on. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. So this other generation rises up. It's the next. It's their turn to be in charge. And they're primarily described with that phrase. They did not know the Lord. Or all the work that he had done. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. I don't think that it means they just never heard about God. It doesn't mean they had no intellectual capacity for him or understanding of it. I don't think that's what it means. It's not that their parents just, oh, we forgot to tell you about the God that we worship. I don't think that's what it's saying. Because in scripture, knowing seems to always have a, a deeper meaning. It, it is used a lot of different ways. We see it, it used in scripture to talk about how husbands know their wives. And it's talking about something else there. It has to do with experience. So when it is talking about the people, this generation did not know God, it is that they, are not, they have not experienced God. They don't have possession of the knowledge of God. It is not real to them. It might just be up here, but it is not down here in their hearts. He was distant to them. And so this new generation that doesn't know God quickly abandons him in verse 12. They abandon the Lord, the God of their fathers. Again, pointing out the difference between the generations. He was the God of that generation, but he's not ours the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the people. They walk away from the Lord. You notice again, the focus here, it appears to be throughout this on how one generation followed God and the next does not. If, this, if they were around today, if you would ask these people, it would be kind of like someone who you ask them, hey, are you a Christian? They say, well, yeah, well, I mean, my parents took me to the Baptist church when I was growing up. Okay, well, that, that's not what I asked you. I asked you, do you, are you a believer in Jesus? Well, my parents, you know, went to the Methodist church. Oh, yeah, my parents were really faithful. Well, that's not 
what it means. God doesn't have any grandchildren. So when the chance comes for this next generation, what's the first thing they do? They cast God to the side and they go after all of the other gods in the nations around them. The compromise that we saw starting in chapter 1 is now full-fledged here. And it's going to continue over and over and over as we go throughout the rest of this book. And so verse 20, the Lord speaks and he says, I'm going to test Israel. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. And he said, these people have transgressed my covenant. They're not obeying my commands. I commanded their fathers. They're not obeying my voice. Well, I will no longer drive out from before them any of the nations that Joshua left when they died. In order to test them. Whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So part of the reason that these nations are left here, that the conquest is incomplete, is as a test, not just as a punishment. But it's to see, okay, now that all these other options are around you, you're not just wandering in a wilderness and you don't have any other gods that you could choose from. Now you can choose, are you going to serve me or are you going to serve the gods of these other nations? It's a chance. That's why he says it's a test. It is, every generation is going to have their own chance, their own ability to choose. Are you going to walk and follow Jesus and follow after God or not? And this generation fails the test immediately. Why? Because God has no grandchildren. Every single generation of Israel has to decide if they really will be followers of God or not. Where is their faith going to be found in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, or is it going to be found in the God of the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Hittites and all of the gods around them? Romans 9, 6 reminds us that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of, and not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. What Paul meant there is reflects here as well as just because you are born in the nation of Israel, that does not give you a free ticket into paradise. Just because you are born and your parents are believers does not mean that you automatically are going to get to go and spend eternity with Jesus. And that day and that wonderful feast when our king will swallow up death that we read about in Isaiah 25, that might not come true for you just because your parents are believers. Each generation and each individual Israelite for themselves as well has to decide, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to follow God? Am I going to submit to his commands or am I going to go my own way? Will they pass the test? Well, and those who fail the test, they miss out on God's blessings. Chapter 2, 14 tells us the anger of the Lord again kindled against them and he gives them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sells them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. It's the image it gives us of God selling Israel to the other gods. So it's metaphorical. It's almost saying, okay, fine. You don't want me. You don't want to be my children. You don't want to worship me and you don't want me to be your God. I'll hand you over to the other gods and see how they treat you. Let them be in charge of you. See how that goes. And then 2.15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them as the Lord had warned. So God opposes them. They want to oppose God. They don't want to submit to his commands. They don't want to repent. They don't want to follow after God. And then they want to kind of go and do things their own way. Then God says, okay, I'll oppose you. You don't want to do things my way. You want to fight me? I'll fight you back. Let's see who wins. Guess what? God always wins. And yet, even though they experience this judgment and this punishment, God still gives them chance after chance after chance. Even in the book of Judges, though it is dark and it's going to get darker as we see and we continue through it, don't miss that there is grace in every single generation. 
That in every single place there is an opportunity, there is, there is a test, that there is deliverance that is offered for them. We see this as it goes through, kind of in 2.16 all the way through the rest of chapter 3 as we get up to Othniel as it talks about the Lord raising up judges. 2.16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Over and over, God raises up these judges. He raises up these saviors. He raises up these deliverers to save his people from their suffering. And we'll see, and we're going to talk about a number of them today. And yet, after each judge and after each deliverance, what do they do in 17? They don't listen. They didn't listen to their judges. They whore after other gods. They bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way that their fathers walked. Even after being shown God's grace, even after being saved and delivered time and time again, their immediate response after the judges dies is just what they did after Joshua dies, is they turn away and they follow after their own gods and they go after their own path. Every generation seems to fail. Verse 19, it repeats, but it shows how it gets worse. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and they were more corrupt than their fathers. It's not just that each generation fails the test. It's also that they then get worse than the generation before them. This is just a spiral going further and further and further into wickedness. And yet at each turn and each cycle and each point, what happens? God is still there with an offer and he still saves them. And he still delivers them, not because they deserve it, but because of his grace and his goodness. This also should make us think of Jesus a little, I think. How all of these judges, they, they saved a little bit, but they couldn't save God's people completely from themselves. And yet that's what Jesus does when he comes. He doesn't just save for a little bit, but he saves us for all time. But the reminder is that God has no grandchildren. Just because you are born in the community of God doesn't mean that you're God's children. But how does this happen? How do generations fall away? A frustrating thing with this text is that it doesn't tell us. I really wish it would say, hey, here's why this generation didn't listen to their parents who were really righteous. Here's, here's what they did. The parents just didn't teach them. They didn't take them to the right church or the right Awanas program. Or if they just did this, then it would have been good. Or, oh, well, it happened because of this. The text doesn't do that for us. I wish it would have. But all that we know... And the important thing that we see and that God wants us to see in this text is that every generation and every individual has a chance and an opportunity to decide, are they going to follow God or are they not? And ultimately, it's up to them at the end of the day, no matter the circumstances or everything around it. And what we're going to see over and over is that they don't respond correctly. Do you ever wonder, too, why we're called brother and sister in the body of Christ? You notice that, right? We don't, it's not just using familial language, but it is specifically, we are called brothers and sisters and that's it. There's not aunts, there's not uncles, there's not grandparents, there's not anything else, there's not nephews, there's just brothers and sisters. Why? Because all of us have to be children of God. There's no grandchildren in God's family. Now also, part of what that means too is that Moses and Othniel and Joshua there are brothers in the faith. Yes, there are ancestors. They're a great example for us, but they're just our older brothers. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, is our sister in Christ, not our mother. It's beautiful, but it's also a reminder for us as well that, look, all of us have to decide, are, am I going to be a child of God? Am I going to follow after Jesus or will I not? 
All of our heroes are really kind of on the same plane here. But what is the, the warning here for us to see? It's a warning that, man, we need, all of us have to decide for ourselves. Are we going to be a follower of God or will we not? You know, I'm, I'm reminded as we, we we've talk, already mentioned this morning, we're, we have a new family pastor who's going to be coming here hopefully in October, and Rob Gervin. And part of the reason that we wanted to hire specifically a family pastor, not just a youth pastor or children's pastor, isn't just because we want to have a really cool title that seems nice so we can feel impressive. It's because, no, we, our, our vision and Rob's vision and our hope is that we would actually lead all of the families together, that we would be raising up generations of people who will follow after God. And part of our, our hope as well is that, you know, we're not just discipling our own children, or we're not just, hand us your children, we'll take care of them for you, we'll teach them about God, you know, you do the rest of this stuff, and that, that'll be it. If, no, we want to, what Rob has said repeatedly is, man, I want to come alongside parents and help them and walk with them and teach them how to disciple their own children so that we can all follow Jesus together. Because just because you're a Christian and you have kids, that doesn't automatically mean your kids are going to become followers of Jesus, as many of you unfortunately may know to be true. The end of the, God has no grandchildren. At the end of the day, we all have to decide for ourselves what we will do. So every generation has to decide. And in every generation, we see the judges fail, but what about the faithful? Let's look at point number two. If you're taking notes, point number two, our, our example in Othniel tells us that a faithful remnant always remains. That a faithful remnant always remains. There are always a few people, even in almost every single generation, who remain faithful to God. Even as the whole generation walks away, and they can be described over and over as that generation followed God, and this generation did not, and they were even more corrupt than the generation to come. Even in the midst of that, you will find few individuals who remain faithful. The remnant. You know, Mr. Rogers, if you remember him from his television show, or the new incarnation, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, if you've missed Mr. Rogers, he would talk about how his mom would tell him anytime he saw scary things on the news that he should always look for the helpers, right? And so that, that's good. That's kind of helpful. Anytime you're seeing something as a child and they're nervous, well, hey, let's look for the good. Let's see the people who are doing the right thing even in the midst of this tragedy. Well, I want to kind of build off of that or just shift it a little bit and tell you that what we should do, even as we see wickedness in a whole generation or wherever you see wickedness, is don't just look for the wickedness. Look for those who are faithful. Look for the people who are honoring Jesus even when no one around them is. Even in the midst of our own wicked days, look for those who don't compromise. Look for those who are acting and loving and following Jesus. And the faithful, usually what we see is they're not always the loudest. Faithful aren't always the people who have the most influence or the most power or look the most important. The faithful usually aren't the people standing up on a mountain talking about, look at me, everyone else is not following Jesus, but I'm amazing and I'm doing the right thing, so here, give me some money so that I can continue to be awesome for you on your behalf. That's usually not what the faithful are doing. Most of the time, the faithful are often the shadows living simple, ordinary lives, honoring Jesus with no fanfare, no reward. And so this brings us to our first judge, Othniel. He was someone we were introduced to him last week. He appears to be the nephew of Caleb, who is one of the faithful spies. And Caleb, his uncle, was obedient. 
He was faithful even when no one around him was, right? He was one of the 12 who went into the land, and he, alongside Joshua, were the only two people who said, hey, God told us we can do this, so let's go. Let's trust God, everybody. And all the other 10 said, no, 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 this is too scary. I don't think God can help us. Maybe we should try something different. So while everyone else fails, Caleb and Joshua put their faith in God. And what we saw last week as well is while everyone else is failing, failing to take the land, failing to take the land, compromising, taking slaves, worshiping other gods, living among them, not obeying what God is telling them to do, who did we see in the middle of it that was doing what God called him to do? It was Othniel. That he was still obeying the Lord, even as no one else was. And so in the last chapter, we were kind of, well, I think what God was doing, it was priming the pump to prepare us to see, hey, everyone else is falling away, but Othniel is being faithful. He's part of the faithful remnant who is still obeying God, even when no one else does. In verse 7, it says, And the people of the Lord again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That phrase, sight of the Lord, if you're somebody who likes to underline or mark things in your Bibles, I encourage you to start underlining that because you're going to see that phrase a lot as we go throughout this book. But so the people of Israel, they do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. It's interesting, the Baals there, it's not just um, the God, Baal, that the Canaanites serve. It's also just kind of all of their gods. And the other God who gets mentioned there is the God of, a God of fertility and a God of military and conquest and war. So it's interesting, too, what are one of the other gods that they choose? Well, wow, God has abandoned us. He's not really helping us win. Maybe let's go try this other god. Maybe this god could help us out. That's just an aside. That's for free. Uh, but what we see here is we see the whole generation is abandoning God except for Othniel. Othniel is remaining faithful. And Othniel, he's not even a native Israelite. He's a Kenite. I mean, he's kind of a second-generation immigrant. He's a foreigner where his people came in and they swore off the gods that they served and they decided, no, we will follow the God of Israel. We want to follow Yahweh. So all these native Israelites are abandoning God in droves. The faithful remnant that remains is this one immigrant who is choosing to stay and obedient to God. And you see this throughout Scripture where there are always faithful people that God leaves behind. And often he's really held up as an ideal judge for us, I think. And he's the first, so it's really important good. If it's going to get worse every time, the first should probably be the best. And it really is. And it's interesting to note how little about Othniel we actually get. We really don't get that much about him. We don't get really cool details. We don't really know anything about his personality. We don't even see how he defeated this king or defeated the army and took this. It doesn't tell us his brilliant strategy. It doesn't tell us how great of a speaker he was or how many men he's, he surrounded himself with. In fact, we don't even hear his voice in this book. He doesn't even say a word. Now, we hear from his wife. His wife speaks in the chapter before, but not him. Why? We, we hear all these other things about other judges. Ehud is left-handed, and we get plenty about Samson and Gideon and Barak and Deborah, but Othniel, we get almost nothing. We don't get many details, and we especially don't get any flaws. At least we're not presented with any flaws that he has. And I think this is for a reason. He, he's held up to be as our example, as somebody who was faithful. And his only actions, the only things that we see, the only way that he is described is 3.9, the Lord raised up a deliverer, saved them off, Neil. In verse 10, kind of the key, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Well, tell me about Othniel. Well, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. 
Well, God was with him. He was a godly man, and God raised him up, and then he went, and he judged Israel, went out to war, his hand prevails, and then he dies. That's what he does. God raises him, God's with him, he's obedient, he dies and leaves. The main thing you can just say about him is that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. That lone, faithful, obedient Othniel delivered the land from their enemies. And through his lone obedience and God uses him, the land has rest for 40 years. 40 years of peace. 40 years of blessing. 40 years of being saved from their enemies and oppression because of the faithfulness of just one man. Well, what should that also remind us of? I think that should make us think about Jesus as well. Who gives not just the land 40 years of peace, but who gives all people salvation and deliverance through his faithfulness in Jesus or through his sacrificial death on the cross. That if we will repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, that all people can find salvation not just for 40 years, but forever. And Jesus, much like Othniel, was humble. Does, this passage doesn't make a lot of Othniel. It's not even to tell us how much of a hero or how amazing he is, but really just how great his God is. Now, I wish what is said of Othniel here, of how just God is with him, could be said of us. What if when someone thought about you, that was the first thing that came to their mind, was how much God was with you? Was how much the Holy Spirit was just upon you and filled you? That, that they can't help but think about how much you are like Jesus. That when they're with you, when they talk to you, when you walk into a room, it just feels like the Holy Spirit came with you. What if that could be said of us? Now, when it comes to the generations around us and when everyone else's choice, what we have to do is we have to choose faithfulness. I think not just we should put our focus as well on the remnant. That even as we are tempted to look at all of the evil that surrounds us, that maybe our focus should not be on how terrible everyone else is, but we should try and look, well, who are those who are still being faithful to God? And maybe I should put my focus there so I can be encouraged. Right? The, the news and media of any form or fashion, however you, you like to pick your poison, it trains us to look for the worst, the most extreme, the most awful, the most terrible, horrible thing that happened today. Here it is. Let me tell you all about it. It trains us to do that. Well, what does that do? What kind of person does that form us to be if that is what we are always looking for and craving and seeking and we open up our newspaper, turn on the computer, turn on the television, I, I can't wait to find out. I got to find out what is the most horrible thing that happened today. What does that do to our hearts? I don't think it's helpful all the time. Instead, I think we need to train ourselves to look for the remnant, to look for those who are faithful. Even in the midst of the great wickedness, I'm not saying bury your head in the sand. I'm saying look at it and then look for, hey, who is still following Jesus in the midst of this? Who is still being obedient even as all the generations are falling away? Who is the faithful remnant? Be encouraged by their existence and their faith. So have we seen that God has no grandchildren? Every generation has to decide for themselves, are they going to follow God or not? And we've seen through the example of Othniel that a faithful remnant always remains. There are always some people who are faithful to God. It may not be many, it may only be one, but there are always a few that God leaves behind all throughout the Old Testament. So what about us? So our application in point number three is, well, what will you choose? Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? We all have to decide for ourselves. 
It's important for us to recognize that every single one of us has to decide, are we going to follow Jesus or not? All of us have to decide, am I going to put my faith in the gospel? Am I going to put my faith in the idea that God himself came down to earth to deliver me from my sins and he lived a perfect life that I couldn't live and died a sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross in order to purchase my salvation and all I have to do to receive it is to put my faith in Jesus. I can't earn it. I can't make it happen. I can't save myself in any way. Jesus already did it for me. Are we going to do that? Will we put our faith in Him? And we have to make that decision for ourselves. No one can make that decision for you. And the decision isn't automatic either. I've heard many of you, though I never heard him say it, I've heard many of you repeat Pastor Brad's phrase, just because you're in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. All right, so just because you're in church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Also, just because your parents were Christians, that doesn't make you Christian either. Just because you grew up a Christian and you grew up going to church, that doesn't mean anything. I grew up in a pastor's home. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins just like I believe the sky was blue because that's what they told me and that's what I got candy for saying and went to Bible school. That's just, that's just what I heard. But that didn't mean anything to me because I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I didn't really know the Lord. Just like Israel didn't really know God even though they knew all about Him. So the question is, will we embrace faith in Jesus? But will we ourselves decide to be a follower of Him? Will we give our lives to the one who gave His life for us? Will we keep that faith? Some people just go to church or call themselves Christians because it's what everybody does. It's popular because of the place that they lived in. If they lived somewhere else and most people didn't call them that, well, then they probably wouldn't call themselves one either. And when, this is why it happens when you see when people go to college or they move to a different state, all of a sudden, well, I thought they were a Christian, but now they're not anymore. If, well, I wonder, I don't know if anything changed. I think something just got revealed. It was easy to say that they followed Jesus because everyone around them said it, but as soon as you move the environment, it's different. And the question for us is, are we going to be faithful? Will we be faithful to God even if no one else around us is? What will be said of you? Will you be faithful even if everyone around you abandons the Bible and decides it's filled with errors and unimportant and we don't need to worry about it anymore? Will you be faithful even as everyone around us is seduced by the idols and the powers and the values of the world? Would you rather have what the world offers, success and money and greatness and fame, or would you rather have Jesus? Would you rather be loved and cheered for and celebrated and thought of highly or would you rather have Jesus and have none of that? And for me, give me Jesus. And I hope that can be true of you and I hope deep down that's true of all of us, not just something we say in bravado. And not just thinking about our own faithfulness, but we have to think about the next generation as well. I think it's part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. It is not just me and Jesus and you do your own thing. This is part of why we were supposed to go to church every Sunday. Not because what happens on Sunday is so mystical and amazing, but it's also because we need each other. We are the body of Christ. The hand needs the foot. You can't just go off on your own. It will not work well that way. And so we as well are supposed to encourage and lift up the next generation. It is part of our job as believers. Every single one of us, if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Jesus, part of your responsibility is to help and encourage and be an example for the next generation so that they want to follow Jesus as well. 
And the reality is, I mean, we can make it harder to have faith in Jesus or we can make it easier. If we live lives like, like Othniel, if we live lives that are faithful, it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that all the time, even as we fail, we repent and we look and we point towards Jesus. We can make it easier. We can make people want to follow Jesus. We can make Jesus attractive. Or we can act like jerks. We can be really unloving. We can act like the world and then go to church on Sunday and then the rest of our lives do whatever we want. And then what does that tell the world? Well, Jesus, that makes Jesus not look that attractive. What I'm, oh, I'm already doing that. So I, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and I'll keep my Sundays free. Maybe I won't mess with that. And when it comes to, to helping the next generation too, I have two thoughts on that. The, the first one is, you know, it's never too early. It's never too early to start helping the next generation. This is one of the, the things I think about a lot, right? Because I've got two very young boys, almost one and almost three. So Brian and I talk, have talked about this a lot as we've been married and with them. Of, well, you know, we want to raise our children up in the church and we want to, to raise them and, and make Jesus attractive and, and hopefully they'll, they'll embrace him and have faith. And I kind of realized one day as we're, you know, talking about all the things, okay, maybe one day we'll do this, like we'll start doing this stuff. And I started thinking, well, what am I, do, what am I waiting for? Okay, am I waiting till Calvin reaches a, a mystical age? And okay, now once he's there, this is when I'll start teaching him about God, now that he's, he's got to that place. And I kind of realized, no, like we, we just need to start doing this now. And so there's a number of, of things that we do, aren't because I'm so genius. I just steal from what other people are doing, if it worked or if it was a good idea. You know, so we, we pray before meals. We pray with them at bedtime. Every night we read a Bible story together, which, you know, some of me enjoys. I don't know how much he understands, but we read it. We sing songs together about Jesus. I'm working through the catechism with him, which is just a series of questions. And where the first one is, Calvin, what is your only hope in life and death? And then he'll answer and say that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Okay, what is God? Well, God is the creator who made everyone and everything. That's as far as we've gotten. We've only got two questions. We've been at it for quite a while. But we're just slowly doing that, right? When, you know, because the problem is if you wait too long, you may find out, oh, wait, I never got around to it. Now they're 16 and they don't want to listen to me anymore, but I waited till now to try and have conversations about God and still do, instead of doing it when it's early. It's never too early to be an example and to be faithful and to point people towards Jesus. It's never too early, but it's also never too late. Some of you in this room have young children. Many of you do not. But no matter how old your kids are, how old you are, if there is still breath in their, your lungs, however little, God is not done with you. If God was done with you, you wouldn't be here anymore. He would take you home. And impacting the next generation doesn't even need to have anything to do with your children or your own children. You can use your influence and your faith and love on the people around you and be an example that points towards Jesus. I know one man who decided to use his retirement to focus on those in prison. So he spends most of his free time visiting prisons, telling people in there about Jesus and how much Jesus loves them and how much Jesus wants to change their lives. I know another woman who has no children, but she spends all of her time volunteering with youth and with kids at her church to just love on them and teach them the Bible and sing with them and play with them. Question we can ask too, or I mean, there's many ways to think about this for yourself. Is you can ask, well, how do I interact with my grandkids? You know, do I talk to my grandkids about Jesus? Do we read the Bible together? Do we worship together? Do do we talk about that stuff? Am I leaving a legacy of faith with them, or am I just assuming that maybe they'll they'll pick it up because they know I go to church and they come with me sometimes? 
Another question, let me challenge some of you here. You know, is there somebody that you're intentionally trying to reach with Jesus, that you are, that you are discipling? Are, are you letting people of the next generation into your life? Or are you trying to be in their lives? You know, we want to be a, a gr- spiritual greenhouse, right, for growth. That's sort of part of our mission and vision as a church is that this would be a place where people can come wherever they are and so that we can help them grow and be more like Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, we hope they would grow and be born and have new life. And no matter how much about Jesus they know, how long they've been walking with him, we hope that they would grow a little bit more and a little bit further. I hope that all of us are doing that, not just here, but in our, our own lives. You know, or, and we want to be a church where people of every generation can come and worship together, not just one. It's a mistake for some churches make when they just make it all about the young and the next generation and they forget about the other generations. Others make the same mistake, but opposite. And so some of you may, may need to hear that challenge, I don't know, but all of us, no matter where we're at, can leave a legacy of faith. The reality is that every single one of us is going to die one day. All of us will. We don't know when that day will come. It can be closer than we dream, closer than we imagine, or it could be way off in the distance. And on that day, you know, someone will will stand up, attempt to speak about us, or people will talk about us later on. And the question is, what are they going to say about you? Will they be able to say about you, like often, man, this is somebody that God was with. They were full of the Holy Spirit. This was somebody who loved Jesus. This was somebody who gave their heart and their life for the kingdom of God. But I could see how everyone they interacted with, I mean, they tried to point them and they tried to love them like Jesus would. It's a question that we need to answer for ourselves. And that, that legacy, too often we can think of the big and the exciting and the heroes. Too often I think we can get distracted by the people who, like Billy Graham or the heroes who go off and do amazing things for God's kingdom. We should celebrate them and that's good. I'm not saying don't. The problem is when we just start comparing ourselves to them and think, well, I can't be that, so I don't know what kind of legacy I can leave. If there's always a faithful remnant, that can be us as well. Our small obedience matters deeply to God. Those quiet moments that no one knows about you except between you and the Lord are significant. Many times they might be the most significant thing. So don't discount those and think that 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 alone doesn't leave a legacy for you. The reality is that we can impact and probably do impact other generations, those before us and after us, in ways that we will never see. And they may be in ways that we never live to see. You can think of this church building itself as an example of that. The fact that this exists, the fact that our church exists, that we are here today worshiping Jesus together is because of the faithfulness of others. It's because of the faithfulness of many who are still in this room. The fact that we don't have, have debt, that this building is all paid off, that is because of the generosity and faithfulness of many who came before us who may not be here now. And we hope if the Lord tarries, right, is that a hundred years from now there will still be a Tanglewood Bible Fellowship here where people can worship Jesus and the gospel is preached and people's lives are changed. And maybe we had a small part to do with running our one lap of the race and leaving a legacy of faithfulness. So what will your choice be? 
Are we going to make it easier or harder for people to follow Jesus? Are we going to be a part of the faithful remnant? Will we choose to follow God even if no one else around us is? So in summary this morning, we've talked about how God has no grandchildren. All of us have to decide for ourselves. Are we going to follow Jesus or not? Seeing that a faithful remnant always remains. There are always some who choose to follow Jesus, even if they are few. The question for us is, will that be us? Will we be faithful? Will we honor God? All of us have to decide for ourselves. And I hope we all decide rightly. Although we decide to put our faith in Jesus, no matter what anyone else around us does, because he's worth it. Let me close us in prayer. Invite the worship team to come up again. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful, Lord. Lord, would you put our eyes on you? Lord, would you, would you help us to, to embrace you, to follow you, to live for you? Lord, would you help us not to just think about doing that in, in big moments with grand gestures, but would you help us to be faithful and obedient to you in the small, quiet moments where no one's around? Lord, I pray for this church and for everyone in this room and for those who are a part of our church who are not here now and all of the other churches, not just in our town, but all over the globe. Lord, would we be faithful? Lord, would we stand as examples of your son, Jesus? Would our lives make people want to know more about Jesus? Lord, would people fall in love with Jesus because of how we've talked about you, because of how we've lived, because of how we pointed to you. Lord, would you help us to either be a faithful generation or at least a faithful remnant. But we can't do it without you. We pray that you would do this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our God in song. And just a reminder, there's still some books, Gentle and Lily, out there um, that's just about Jesus' heart and his love for sinners. We're going to leave those out for the next couple of weeks. So if you haven't got one, please do. Um, or if you know someone that would appreciate it, you feel free to take one for them. And I'll leave you with this benediction from the end or from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.